were really, really getting discouraged. Well, Jimmy picked me up at the airport, jumped into the car, and the timing on this couldn't have been greater because he said to me, on my way to the airport, Rachel phoned me and she's pregnant. And so all of a sudden, my trip to Seattle became a just, a, it was going to be a big party, a great celebration time. I took them all out to eat, and I was there for all that initial dreaming and talking that they had and planning for the birth of this child. And April, uh, December 27th of this past year, just about a year, a little under a year ago, little Ada Pearl uh, Nichols, Ada Pearl Nichols, was born into the world. And I'll tell you what. She has been a bundle of joy to our family ever since. Now, you all know that as a proud granddad, I've been really good all year long. I've been behaving myself. I've been restraining myself from overdoing the bombardment of pictures and all those kinds of things that proud grandparents do. But, you know, I can't contain myself any longer. I can't contain myself this morning. So I have something I want to show you that I think is some of the greatest video footage that's ever been shot <laughs> on the planet. Uh, I've been expecting to, you know, to get a call from Good Morning America anytime because they, just want, they want to get this out for the world to see. So you guys, I just want you to sit back and watch and, and be amazed, okay, over these next couple minutes. All right, this is Ada Pearl Nichols. Boo. Ada, are you so big? So big. So big. So big. Mama? Ada, so big, so big, so big. <laughs> Pretty girl, are you so big? <laughs> Can you wave bye-bye? So big. <laughs> Ada. Oh, peekaboo. Right. I have plenty more where that came from if you want to <laughs> take time to see them. Now, the birth of a baby brings joy. We all know that. I mean, this has been a year at Calvary Church where we've had several babies born. I can see a couple of them sitting right here this morning. And they, they brought joy to the whole church family. That's, the, that's what happens when babies are born. I think this can help us understand a little bit what was going on inside the hearts of the three wise men that we've been looking carefully at during this Christmas season. What was going on inside their hearts that motivated them to make that unbelievable trip by camel all the way from Persia, today's Iran, it was about 1,200, 1,000 miles they traveled by camel, to come, all because they had news of the birth of a baby. Now, to get some perspective on this, the next time you go to uh, Brookfield Zoo and you're standing there at the camel section, looking at the camels, I want you to think what that would be like. 
Say you got onto a, you rented a camel from Brookfield Zoo, and you rode it from here to Disney World. Now, let me tell you, would it take, would you have to be pretty motivated? You have to have a good reason to, to ride a camel from here to Disney World? I think so. Well, that just tells us a little bit about the excitement that was in the hearts of these three wise men from Persia to motivate them to jump on their camels and, and, and ride months, 1,200 miles. But they did it because they had news of a baby who was to be born in the land of Israel who would bring such joy to the world and make such a difference in the world that when he came, the world would begin to be transformed and become a world such as none of us have ever known. So they jumped on their camels and took off. Now they got the news from the many prophecies of the scripture which had been brought to Persia centuries before when the people of Israel had been held captive as slaves in their land. This was about 600, between 600 and 500 B.C. And so into their hands, they had the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures about a coming Savior King. And a lot of times when we read the story of the wise men, our concentration is upon, well, they saw this star, it caught their attention, and so they just started to follow that star. Well, no, there's more to it than that. First of all, that star, about the rising of a special star at, to signal the birth of this Christ child, that's a prophecy itself from Numbers chapter 27, verse 14, or 24, verse 17. But they had a whole one-third of this Bible, this scripture, uh, two-thirds of it is basically prophecy about the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. They had a wealth of prophecies that they were putting together. They had studied these. And so when that star showed up to the west over Israel, they, con they connected that with everything else they'd been reading about the birth of this child. And that's what motivated them to get on their camels and go. And one of the prophecies they would have read was that of the prophet Isaiah, which he had written down in 700 B.C. B.C. is what? Before Christ. 700 B.C. And we find this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And I want us to take a look at this prophecy this morning. Verse number 1. Isaiah begins to describe a brand new day, a new world that is going to, to come. It's a day when there will be, as he says here, no more gloom and distress. Now that sounds pretty good to me, and I'm ready to sign up for a world like that. How about you? Here's what he says in verse number one. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now in the previous chapter, Isaiah has been describing some, a terrible time of suffering for two of the tribes, two of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel that lived to the northern part of the country, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They're mentioned there. But you know, he could have referred to any nation not then or now in the history of the world because the one thing that has marked all the nations of the world and all the history of the world is suffering and pain. Then he goes on in this passage, and look at what he says. He turns a corner in verse number one. He says, but in the future, God will honor, that is, bring glory to, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, a Gentile, that's non-Jewish people. Now, Galilee 
was, was an ancient part of the land of Israel. It belonged to the land of Israel. In fact, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali that are mentioned here, they occupied the region of, Na- of Galilee, the northernmost part of Israel. And then you notice that Isaiah is very, very careful to pinpoint the exact location that he's talking about. By the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, near the Jordan River. Let's put it together. Isaiah is careful to pinpoint a location for us, the northern region of Israel, Galilee, and what he's saying is this. At some point in the future, when that part of Israel has come under Gentile rule, it's no longer part of the the nation of Israel, that at that time, God is going to do something unheard of in that part of the world. Beginning in the region of Galilee, bringing his glory to the region of Galilee, that is going to set in motion this promise to begin ridding the world of all of its distress and oppression, all the suffering that goes with it. It would set in motion a chain of events that would transform the world, heal the world, restore the world. And what would that restoration look like? Well, Isaiah goes on to describe it in the next several verses. Let's look at verse number two. Beginning in the region of Galilee, when it is at a time when it is under Gentile oppression, he says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A new day has dawned. And then in, in verse number three, this is, this is what Isaiah goes on to say. He says, you, that is, he's referring to God, by what you have started in Galilee, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. So he's talking about a joy movement that is going to begin to sweep the world beginning near the Jordan River in the northern region of Galilee, and it's going, to, it's going to expand to the nation. You've increased the joy of the nation, he says. And you know what? The prophecies of Scripture, the book of Isaiah itself, continues to say that this, this sweeping movement of joy is going to spread not only to the nation of Israel, but it's going to spread throughout the entire world. And it's going to bring joy to the world and peace that is totally unheard of. It's going, to, it's going to crowd out all the suffering and injustice and, and all the things that bring the world down. Isaiah gives us three ways. He compares it to three ways, three kinds of what the joy is going to be like. He compares it to three examples that the people he was writing to, they would have related to, they would have understood it because he draws it out of their own history and their own experience. Here's the first one. In verse number three, they're going to rejoice before God as people rejoice at the harvest. Now, you know, in ancient Israel and in all ancient lands, there was no greater cause for joy than having a bumper crop because their livelihoods, their lives depended literally upon their crops. And so whenever Israel had a bumper harvest season, okay, everything stopped in the nation. And it was a time to get the trumpets. It was a time to go dance in the streets. It was a time for feasting and festival and party. Everything stopped so that they could celebrate. And joy swept over the land from one corner to another because of a bumper crop. Isaiah is saying, okay, that that thing that's going to start in Galilee someday, 
That's what's going to spread throughout the whole world. And it's not going to be just seasonal. It's going to be a joy that stays, that rules this world. Okay, he gives a second example. He says it's also like as people who rejoice when dividing the plunder. That is what happens when a war ends and the invading army has been finally conquered and all of the resources that that invading army had been using against you to destroy you are now in your hands. Now, I thought, when I read that, I thought of the end of World War II. I wasn't there to see it. I think there's a few here this morning that were there to see, the t- or to, to read about it. I've seen news clippings of that huge ticker tape parade in New York City. I'll tell you what, the ticker tape falling to the ground is so thick that you can hardly see the people. And the streets of New York City were filled. And you, you've seen that newspaper photo of the uh, soldier, the unnamed soldier that is there, and, and they have this big kiss right on Main Square, or, or right in Times Square, whatever it is. You've seen that. Well, the, our nation began to celebrate. Every nation does at the end of a war. That's what he's saying. And then he gives a third example in verses 4 and 5. Isaiah says it's going to be like the joy of another great day in the history that Israel could relate to. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, it refers to a time a few centuries before when a neighbor of Israel called the Midianites. They invaded Israel. They made them slaves. They imprisoned them. They beat them. They took their rights away until... God stepped in and did something about it. And he raised up this man named Gideon. And you may know the story from the Bible. It's one of the most amazing. Gideon, with just 300 soldiers, beyond all belief, it's nothing like this written in any of the military strategy books, I'm sure, because God was behind it. But with 300 men, a surprise attack. Isaiah describes how Gideon broke the power of that enslavement. He says, he shattered the yoke that burdened them and the bar that the invaders had pushed down on their shoulders. That bar was torn away. And the rod of their oppressors that had been used to beat them, that rod was yanked out of their hand. And a time of peace and a time of joy came flooding in to the nation of Israel once again. So Isaiah uses these three examples. as what's going to happen to the whole world in that future day. When God begins something at the intersection of the Jordan River in the northern region of Galilee, something's going to start at that intersection in the world. And it's going to end up defeating all of the abuse, all of the suffering, all of the injustice, all of the human sex trafficking, all the innocent... Uh, the abuse of the innocent, all the sorrows, everything, the economic crashes and the economic pressures, everything that you and I contend with in this world, beginning there, God is going to do something that's going to cause this movement of joy to fill the earth and sweep across our world. Verse number five says, it'll be so complete that every warrior's boot used in battle, trampling down people, And every garment rolled in blood, the blood of violence, it's going to be destined for burning. Big bonfire. All of those weapons of violence and war are going to be turned into fuel for a big fire. And like I said, replacing all of that 
is this worldwide movement of joy. I'm a very conservative person. I'm really reserved. <laughs> I grew up in a household filled with reserved people. <laughs> How could I be otherwise then? I'm really reserved. But you know what? When that day comes, you will see me out there dancing in the street, okay? Uh, I'll be uh, playing a tambourine. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be totally out of character, I guess you would say, but that'll be okay. Because, oh man, hasn't, haven't human beings dreamed for utopia forever? Haven't philosophers written about this day? But you know what? We live in a, in a day of anti-philosophy. We live in a day of postmodernism when people have even given up on writing philosophy because the, the, the current philosophy today is that there is no final purpose. There is no final meaning to be found in this planet. And I was just reading, reading the other day, one of the, one of the great philosophers that really had a shaping influence in Adolf Hitler and his strategy, which we know was very oppressive, <laughs> Arthur Schopenhauer. Arthur Schopenhauer was such a true, he was, a, he was an atheist, but he was a really honest atheist. And in his philosophy, believe it or not, you can read it, he advocated in his philosophy that it would be better if we were all dead, if, we had, if none of us had ever been born in this accident of nature that we call, that we call life. It would, have been, it would have been better that we'd never been born because life is far more cruel than it is joyful. Okay? God is going to do something about that. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. And what is this thing that God is going to do beginning, that's going to, that's going to take place in the nation of Israel? Well, this is what got the wise men on their camels right here. Listen. The birth of a baby. Verse 6. For unto us... A child is born. To us a son is given. That passage right there is saying something more to us about this is not just going to be a natural birth. A, a son is born, but something else. That son has been given. This son is the son of God who has come into our world. He's given to us by God. And so when they saw that star situated over Israel, fulfilling that prophecy from the book of Numbers, and when they knew that the political situation in Israel fit exactly to a T, what Isaiah describes in this passage of Scripture, that Israel, written by Isaiah in 700 B.C., would be occupied by a foreign power oppressing them. You know what? The Roman Empire had not even been dreamed of when Isaiah wrote this, with this prophecy. But the Romans came in and they were cruel oppressors. And Galilee was one of the regions where their cruelty was most expressed. So they saw this. The political landscape and the star in the heavens, they put it together. And they set out for Israel. Now we know that when the wise men came... They, what did they discover? They discovered that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is not in Galilee. Bethlehem is in Judea, which is a region to the south of Galilee. But you know what? That's also in fulfillment of another great prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where the prophet said, Out of you, Bethlehem, smallest of the cities of David, 
will come forth the ruler who is to rule the world, whose goings have been from eternity past. But you know what? Isaiah was right on the money too. Because where did Joseph and Mary move to live within just a year or two of Jesus, after Jesus' birth? Well, they went back to their hometown. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40 tell us that the hometown of Joseph and Mary and the town that became Jesus' hometown where he grew up is none other than Nazareth. And where is Nazareth located? It's located in the heart of Galilee, the northern regions, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the place of intense suffering and pain. You know, the pro- so let me say it this way. Isaiah nailed it in 700 B.C. He nailed it. God's word always nails it. The prophecies of the scripture are overwhelming evidence of a God who has a plan and a purpose for this world to save it from itself, from its own self-destruction, from its own from mutual destruction. God has a plan to step in and save this world. You know what? He has a plan to step in and save your life and my life and put us on the path of joy. And the most wonderful part of the prophecy is who Isaiah identifies this child to be born, who he's going to be. Listen to what he says in verse 6. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, you know what that word wonderful, it's the word that means supernatural. What does supernatural mean? Well, supernatural is simply a way of saying above nature, above creation. And so this one, who is he called? He is the above creation, the above nature counselor. Counselor is one who plans, one who can give wisdom. That's who was in that manger. And then the second one, I mean, it doesn't get better than this. He will be called the mighty God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And then it says everlasting father. Well, that's a little bit confusing because Isaiah has just said, unto us a son will be born, unto us a son is given. But now he says, well, he's the everlasting father. How can that be? How can he be a son and a father? Well, I think it comes back to, I think Jesus answered that for us. When Jesus made that statement in the Gospel of John, he said, he who has seen me has seen the father. My father and I, we are one. Now, Jesus wasn't denying the Trinity there. The Trinity is that we have a, a, a great God somehow in a way we can't figure it out. He's a God who shares one essence and one being and yet exists as three distinct persons. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, and Eternal Holy Spirit. But you know what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equal, they are eternal. And when Jesus said, if you see the Father... If you see me, you've seen what the Father's like too. Okay, he is in that sense our everlasting Father because of his, his part of the Trinity. But then it says, he's the Prince of Peace. And that's a great message for our world. Isaiah is telling us this. And here's the heart of the whole, here's the heart, here's the one thing the Bible is all about. Here's the one message it has. Jesus is God entering into human history. Jesus is God entering into the human family. 
God coming in to be one of us. Now, does that sound too far out to be true? Does that sound too far out? Uh, does that f sound too far out to be anything other than what we would have to classify, especially in our modern world, as a myth? Well, I think we ought to wait a second before we make that classification. Given the condition of our world, which I think we would agree is bent on destruction, is there anything that a father or a mother, a parent, wouldn't do to save their child or to save their children if their ch when their children were in peril? even to the point of suffering themselves and sacrificing to save that child. Now, I've heard parents in this, in this church family say to me, when their kids have been suffering, I've had parents say to me, I wish it was me in that hospital bed. I, if, if there was a way that I could take what my child is going through right now, if there was a way I could take that, I would put myself there to spare my child. That's as real as real gets. That's real love. That's real stuff in this world. You've experienced that. You feel that way as a parent. Well, guys, come on. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. The God who created us. We're his children. Is it, is it so unreasonable to expect that such a God would have a passionate love for us? I don't think that's unreasonable at all. I don't think that's absurd. I don't think that's mythology at all. I think that's ex extreme rationality. And that if that God saw us in peril of our own destruction, well, you know what? There's nothing else he could do. There's no other way he could save us. There is no other way in the universe. God could change the course of events on this planet. Except he stepped in and became part of our human family. And here's the reason for that. Well, let me, read, let me read to you what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says. The writer of Hebrews nails it. He says this, Since the children, that is God's children, have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, the one who holds us in oppression, just like the Romans held the Galileans in oppression, just like the Midianites held the people of Israel in oppression centuries ago, we are held in oppression by a, a far stronger ruler. And I, the writer of Hebrews identifies him. That is the devil. That is Satan. He holds the earth in oppression. Jesus, by his death, he came to be one of us so that as a human being, he could die for you and me. He goes on in verse 17 and says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers, like his sisters, that is, human, in every way, in order that he might make atonement, that is, pay the price for our sins. So you see, Jesus is our God. He became our fall guy. He took the blame and the judgment for all of the sins that every other human being has ever committed, including you and me, the sins that separate us from God. He came as a sinless human being 
and lived in this world. He identified with our sufferings. He knows what you're going through. He understands pain. But even more than that, he went to the cross and died for your sins and mine so that we wouldn't have to be separated from God anymore. Uh, there could be a way out of this dilemma of ours, a way into joy, a way into peace, a way into what God originally intended all of us to experience, a way to find forgiveness of our sins, which paves the way for him to come into your heart and become for you personally everything that his name implies. In other words, when we come to him for forgiveness, Jesus enters into his heart, your heart and, and he becomes your wonderful counselor. He becomes your mighty God. He becomes your everlasting father. And he becomes your prince of peace. It's not a fairy tale. I believe, it's the one, I believe it's the one most rational thing in a world like ours that is very irrational. I think it's the one thing that makes more sense than anything else. That there would be a God who wanted to do something to turn things around on our behalf, and the only thing he could do was to step in and find a way for the separation between us and him to be taken care of. So Isaiah goes on to tell us in verse number 7 how Jesus will go about totally turning the world around. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Now, David was Israel's greatest king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God came to David and said, I'm going to give you an heir on your throne. Born someday, he's going to take your throne. He's going to rule on it forever in an eternal kingdom. Mary, Jesus' mom, was part of the family tree of King David. So Jesus, through the virgin birth of Mary, was also part of David's family tree. And Jesus is the promised eternal heir to that throne. Now that's another whole string of prophecies in the scripture. Prophecies given through King David. So what is Jesus going to do when he takes that throne and comes to, into our world? It says he's going to be establishing and upholding the kingdom with justice and righteousness from that time on and, what, forever. Can we be sure of this? Well, the, the prophecy ends this way. The zeal of the Lord, in other words, the passion of God, he will see to it that this prophecy is fulfilled. Now, you might think this. Okay, I see, I see in part... Isaiah's prophecy. And I'm pretty impressed by it. I'd have to admit I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, the thing about Galilee and the River Jordan and, and Jesus being born there and the, and the wise men coming there and, and connecting it with all the other prophecies, I think that's pretty impressive. I, I like the precision. precision. That's amazing. But then we might say, I don't see the fulfillment, though, of the other part of Isaiah's prophecy. I don't see that Jesus, after his coming, has turned this world around. I mean, the world looks to me like it's more messed up and more complicated in its confusion and evil than it's ever been. What's going on? Well, that's because the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, the total completion of this prophecy, is still in the future. When the same Jesus who came the first time He's going to come a second time. 
And when he does, he'll bring it all to completion. Acts chapter 1, verse 17. This same Jesus that you have seen ascend into heaven, he will come again from heaven. I have some questions I want to close the message with this morning. First, here's the first question. Do you think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Do you think the world is going to totally unravel and go up in the smoke of a nuclear war detonated by a rogue terrorist nation? Now, I don't know if we have all the political genius and military genius to stop that from happening if it's left up to us. I don't know if we could stop that from happening. However, the answer to that question is no. Because the same Jesus who showed us what kinds of things he can do when he came the first time, Remember the time when Jesus was out in a boat and it was about to sink? And it was a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee, in fact. The disciples, experienced fishermen, they said, man, Jesus, what are you sleeping? We're going down. We're going under. They couldn't handle the situation. They were experts on the sea. They couldn't handle it. What did Jesus do? He stood up in that boat, put his hands up like this, and spoke to the storm. You know what the scripture says? It says the storm, the word, Greek word there is the storm submitted to his word. He stopped it. That same Jesus, before this world destroys itself, that same Jesus is coming again from heaven to fulfill the promise. And he's going to stop the perfect storm that's brewing in this world. He's going to stop it. And in his place, the Bible says, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The joy of Christ is going to fill this world. I say that to you this morning as a word of hope. The Lord is going to take care of things for us. Let me ask you a more personal question. As a follower of Christ, what is your purpose in this world as it now is, this in-between world, living between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming? He hasn't come back yet to totally straighten out the world and fill it with his peace and joy. And what that means is that this world that you and I now live in, and I don't need to tell you this, is a very tough place to live. There's unbelievable sorrow. There's injustice. There's betrayal. There's human trafficking. There's prejudice. There's bitterness. There's hate. There are nations living today in starvation, whole nations of people, in thirst and disease. What is our purpose as followers of Christ? Our purpose is to bring Jesus to the people of this suffering world. First of all, so that they can find in him salvation for their souls. And then to bring to them the peace and strength they need to endure. Entering into their sufferings, like we're doing at Advent Conspiracy. Buying broods of chickens. People we're never going to see, but I'll tell you what. There are going to be people who stay alive because we've sent 12 chicken, chickens to them. Or creating Christmas families here in our own community for people who've been really hit by this economic storm that's going on right now. And we have nine families within our own church family that we're going to be reaching out to in a very special way. You know what makes all that possible? You entering into their sufferings in whatever ways on that 
Advent conspiracy card that you're getting involved. You're entering, you're following Jesus and what he did and what he's called us to do. It's our purpose until the day Jesus comes again and straightens things out. Until that day, we're his servants. We represent him in this world and to do everything we can do. Our theme this morning on this fourth day of Advent is to love all. Jesus loved all, didn't he? That's what he's called you and I to do until he comes again. And I want to close with the biggest question. Have you believed from your heart in Jesus Christ and have you taken him to yourself as your Savior? Have you asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, paving the way for him to enter into your heart to live inside of you? Now, here's the amazing thing. The same Jesus that's someday going to come and straighten things out in the world at large. Okay, what he wants to do right now in your life, he wants, to, he wants you to receive him so he can come in and start straightening things out for you personally in your life. And he's capable of doing that. He's capable of coming in and straightening things out. But you know what? He knocks on the door. The book of Revelation says Jesus comes and knocks on the door of your heart. And I believe he's probably some people, he's knocking on your heart's door right now this morning. Maybe you've never received him before. Someone said the, door's on the, 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 door, the, the door handle's on the inside. He doesn't push the door down. We have to open that door. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins, prevented him from coming into your life and having the, the most deep experience of, you'll ever have in this world, if you'll open that door, Christ will come in. And he'll begin to make, reveal himself and make a difference in your own personal world now. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for your interest in this world. It's not just a casual interest or a passing interest. 